This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Heat from the future just struck Pakistan and India. Almost a billion humans on the planet went through days above 100 degrees Fahrenheit, 37 degrees C. It's not much cooler at night. There is little air conditioning. As Megan Darby writes in Climate Home News, crops are withering. People, too. But the extent of excess mortality will be modeled after the fact, not written on death certificates. End quote. As 350.org's Bill McKibben tweeted, 10% of all the people on Earth are sweltering under truly extreme heat tonight. On April 26th, Dr. Elizabeth Sawin tweeted, The heat also threatens wheat harvests at a time when global supplies of the crop are already under pressure due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Heat waves have hit India's biggest wheat-producing states, Haryana, Uttar Pradesh, and Punjab. She links to a revealing article about the India heat and world food supplies in that reliable publication, New Scientist. It has this headline, Severe Indian heat wave will bake a billion people and damage crop. Yes, it gets hot all through India and Pakistan. But not this hot in April. It's like summer in the spring. Temperatures went over 45 degrees Celsius. That's 113 Fahrenheit in many cities of India. There was an underreported scorching April heat wave in South America, too. Far away from global newsrooms of the West, other people are stressed, suffering, and dying because a few countries built empires built on fossil fuels. That is the ugly truth. A few play, the many pay. We must, must, must stop dumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Can forests help us? Can we save the very birthing ground of species in the tropical forests? We will talk with the Director General of C4, the largest forest science organization in the world. Famed scientist Dr. Robert Nassi has a warning, though. Other life does not care if humans fail and go extinct. Earth is not a benign playground, all made for us, he says. But first, yet another alert from science. In most parts of the world, the probability of tropical cyclone strikes will double, and not by 2100, but 2050. That's during the next few decades. In some places, the risk of hurricanes, typhoons, or cyclones, call them what you will, returning is four times greater or even more. Get ready for a stormy world. Welcome to Radio EcoShock. I'm your host, Alex Smith. It seems the world is being hit with more big storms. But is that really true? Call them hurricanes, typhoons, or tropical cyclones. Will they get worse in coming decades as the world warms? The answer has been unknown and maybe unknowable with the current records we have and the tools we have, unless someone finds the patterns to how tropical cyclones work. That is the thesis and new paper from Nadia Blumendahl at Free University Amsterdam. Nadia has won several awards for her work on risks even before completing her doctorate, including one from the big insurer Lloyd's from the Netherlands. Nadia Blumendahl, welcome to Radio Ecoshock. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. 
When planning risk and climate policy, world governments depend on the latest global climate models. Why do those models leave us blind to developing cyclone risks? Well, in order to properly understand tropical cyclone risk, we want to understand the full spectrum of all tropical cyclones that could potentially hit your location of interest. So that's not just the weaker storms, but we're also talking about the unprecedented, never seen before events that could inflict a lot of damage and a lot of impact. But the problem with climate models and the problem with historical records is that they are typically too short of a temporal length. They're typically covering 30 to maybe 100 years, if you're lucky. They're covering 30 to 100 years, which is just too short to understand all the possible tropical cyclones that could hit Miami or that could hit Houston. So you developed a new algorithm called STORM. What does that allow scientists and really any analyst who can get the data to do? As I said, the historical records, they have too short of a temporal scale. But with STORM, we can actually overcome this problem. So what STORM does is it takes a tropical cyclone statistics that we see in the historical records or in the climate models. So think about frequency, intensity, tracks. We take all that information out of those data sets and we plug them into our statistical model. And our statistical model then creates a new tropical cyclone out of that information. And that tropical cyclone is then theoretically possible under those climate conditions from which you took the data out. Now, that procedure of creating a new tropical cyclone is something that you can repeat for thousands and thousands of times. So that means that you can basically blow up the records that you had with new statistically possible tropical cyclones. And that way, we can finally start to analyze and start to simulate those intense tropical cyclones that inflict a lot of damage in any place on Earth. And that's why that's really relevant for risk assessments. Nadia, you led the new paper titled A Globally Consistent Local-Scale Assessment of Future Tropical Cyclone Risk. Why is local scale an essential component of the storms that you study? Well, the simple answer here is that tropical cyclone risk is highly spatially varying. It's really depending on which location you look at what that risk profile looks like. So, for instance, if we're looking at the Caribbean, Puerto Rico has a way higher chance of being hit by an intense tropical cyclone than, for instance, Grenada or Bonaire. So you cannot really squeeze them together in your same analysis. They are highly different in in their risk profile. And that's why this local skill is so important. Well, obviously, we cannot measure the future. We can only model it. Did you employ historical wind data as well as sort of a cross-check to your system? So in a study that we published in 2020, we actually created a present climate, well, 1980 to 2017 climate conditions. We created such a data set with storm. So we used historical observations and then plugged that into storm to create this new synthetic data set. And that was a data set that we could validate against the historical statistics. Now, the thing that I need to clarify here 
is that synthetic models create new tropical cyclones that are theoretically possible. So you cannot one-on-one -on -one compare those synthetic tracks. You will not find Hurricane Katrina in there, but you might find a Hurricane Katrina-like cyclone, just to clarify how the models work. So in order to validate, as you were asking, uh, what you can do is you can validate the statistics. So does your model not overestimate intensity? Is, is it all you know, within reasonable bounds of what we saw in historical data? And Storm is doing a pretty good job on that aspect. Well, I think it's really too bad the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change rearranged all the names for the climate future scenarios. We were just getting to learn the older ones, and now hardly anyone knows what the new ones mean. Your group used the SSP 5-85 scenario as our assumed climate future. Could you tell us what that means, and how does it compare with the reality of our current emissions? So... SSP 585 compares best to what was previously known as RCP 8.5. And RCP 8.5 is a climate scenario in which we assume that basically no changes are being done to our emission scenario. So we continue emitting yeah, high amounts of CO2 and, and other greenhouse gases every year. To translate that to what does that look like in, for instance, 2100, SSP 585 is around 3.3 to 5.7 degrees of global warming by 2100. Now, there's one thing that I need to mention here, and that is that we are not looking at the far future. We are looking at the near future. So that is between 2015 and 2050. And actually, what we know also from the IPCC reports is that in that shorter time span, so in that near future window, the SSP scenarios, the RCP scenarios, they don't really differ that much in their temperature projections. The temperatures really start to ramp up after 2050. So that SSP 585 scenario, you, yeah, you could say in a way that it is what's somehow going to happen over the next few decades, irrespective of yeah, which emission scenario you take. That makes a lot of sense. So your team finds the probability of intense tropical cyclones, on average, more than doubles in all regions, except for the Bay of Bengal and the Gulf of Mexico. Let's take that last part first. It's great news that the storm-battered Gulf of Mexico and the Bay of Bengal, which has been hit so many times, will not double in the probability of tropical cyclones or hurricanes, according to your study. Why are those already stormy places not expected to get worse along with the rest of the world? Okay, let's discuss these one by one. So in the case of the Bay of Bengal, uh, we found that the climate models that we used as input data for storm, that they were actually projecting that the Genesis region, so where the tropical cyclone forms, moves closer to the land in the near future climate. It moves closer to the Indian, Sri Lanka uh, land mass. And with moving closer to land and the cyclone forming there, there's actually less time for a tropical cyclone to intensify all the way up to category four or five before it makes landfall. Because as soon as it makes landfall, it starts to decay because it loses its connection with the warm ocean waters. So that is what's happening in the Bay of Bengal. They're moving closer to the shore and 
then they have less time to intensify all the way up to those higher intensities. And these results were actually, yeah, in a slightly different way, but they are backed up by other literature. So it's not just an artifact from our models. And in the case of the Gulf of Mexico, there's actually something really interesting going on there. What we found was that in the Gulf of Mexico, the absolute number of all tropical cyclone formations is actually about projected to decrease. So we're going to see less tropical cyclones overall in the Gulf of Mexico. The reason that is, is, well, one of the reasons is because of enhanced atmospheric stability. So with a more stable atmosphere, a tropical cyclone will have a harder time to form. But the problem is, as soon as the cyclone does manage to form, the seawaters, the warmer seawaters are actually serving as extra fuel for that system to get going. So once a cyclone does manage to form, chances are higher that it's going to be a more intense cyclone. And rather coincidentally, I don't have an exact explanation for this, but rather coincidentally, the amount of tropi intense tropical cyclones that forms in the future climate is then still approximately the same as in the present climate, even though the conditions are less favorable. So, and that has its effect on, yeah, on our estimates that not, nothing much is changing. So it won't be as, as scary as it could be at the Gulf of Mexico, but I don't want to gloss over the first part of that uh, sentence, namely that tropical cyclones on average the probability more than doubles wherever tropical cyclones are are normally found. So that sounds pretty serious for us all. Yeah. So, well, we do have to say here that we are talking on the effects on the local scale. So it's not that everything basin-wide is going to double, but when you look at it in, in your town or in your city, yeah, in any region other than the Gulf of Mexico or the Bay of Bengal, yeah, that probability of facing an intense cyclone condition on average more than doubles. Yeah, that's our finding, yeah. So we know the global average, as you've said, they matter less than what really happens locally. Where does your study suggest the biggest increases in tropical cyclones will strike? So what we found was that predominantly in yeah the Western Pacific region, such as Japan and South Korea, uh, and in the South Pacific, near Australia and, well, the South Pacific Islands, that the largest increases are projected to occur there. And we're talking about a five to tenfold increase in tropical cyclone yeah, wind speed probabilities. Uh, and it even goes up to a factor 21 near Japan. So that's significant. A couple of decades ago, scientist Kerry Emanuel suggested America would be hit by more hurricanes as the world warmed, like the number would go up. And then came a surprise the number of hurricanes did not increase in that period, but the intensity of superstorms did. Where does your study come in on this question? We know storms will have more energy, but will we have more of them? What we found was that on average, uh, the tropical cyclone wind speeds, so now we're just talking like per cyclone individually, that they are on average projected to increase. And that is predominantly due to the warmer sea uh, temperatures, uh, which yeah, serves as fuel, as I said before. And we also see that the fraction of intense cyclones increases in almost all regions, except for the Bay of Bengal. So we're pretty much in line with well what you just said. 
Will the biggest storms get even bigger, or is there a limit approaching? It sounded from my reading of the paper that sea surface temperatures might be a determining factor, but is there a limit, or can these things just get bigger and bigger? We're not going to go towards like the Hurricane East movie type of situations. No, there is an environmental limit to how strong tropical cyclones can get, and that is a factor, yeah, an, an environmental variable which is known as the maximum potential intensity. Uh, and that maximum potential intensity is depends on sea surface temperatures and a couple of more environmental parameters because of, yeah, that environment then kind of limits a tropical cyclone to go on to like infinite intensities. But just to give you an idea, hurricanes Dorian and Irma, they were pretty close to that maximum potential intensity for the North Atlantic Ocean in the climate conditions at that time. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Nadia Blumendahl. We're talking about a study on the upcoming future of storms. Your study does focus on Category 3 storms, but what about the really big ones like the Cat 4 and Cat 5? Will they also increase? The way that our study works is that, yeah, we assess return periods. And a return period, you should basically see that as an exceedance probability. So if we're talking about the return period of a Category 3, we're actually talking about the exceedance probability of Category 3 wind speeds. So anything of Category 3 and up. So we're not just looking at Category 3s, we're looking at 3, 4, 5s. And uh, the reason that we took that Category 3 threshold is because at Category 3 uh, wind speeds, already significant damage starts to occur. And that is the information that you need for your risk assessments. Tell us what these storm models suggest about the future poleward expansion. Do we know how much further up the east or west coast of North America, for example, such high-intensity hurricanes might go in coming decades? So I cannot give you an exact distance in terms of kilometers or miles. That's It, it still depends very much on the environmental conditions, how far a cyclone can actually travel, like in, in absolute distance. But what we did find in our study is that in the Western Pacific and in the North Atlantic, the location of maximum intensity, so yeah, the latitude at which the tropical cyclone reaches its peak intensity, that that is shifting poleward. So yeah, that means also because of those warmer seawaters, um, that means that that warmer seawater is extending further poleward. So it's supporting the tropical cyclone with higher intensities further poleward. So yeah, we are going to see probably intense cyclones traveling further north, but don't ask me exact distances because, yeah, I can't give you that. It kind of surprised me when Hurricane Sandy hit New York and New Jersey. We don't think of New Jersey as a, as a hurricane area, but uh, perhaps in the future they will get more, and, and so we'll have to be on our watch for that. You also studied low-probability events why, when there's so much less likely to happen? So the reason that we are interested in low probability events is because these are the events that rarely happen, but when they do happen, they inflict a lot of damage. A category four or five event in yeah, your coastal town in, in America or wherever you may be, 
getting a category four or five in your city is what we consider a low probability event. It doesn't happen every year, fortunately not. And it's these type of events, as I said, it's these type of events that inflict the most damage. So that is why from a risk perception, we want to understand these low probability events and we want to mitigate the risks of these low probabilities, high impact events. Well, you mentioned cities, and at least 8% of humans live in megacities, and that's where the really big risk as far as insurers go, and, and, and just for people's lives, that's where the biggest damage is. Did you study the future of big storms for cities? In our paper, we, uh, we did demonstrate how you can use our storm data sets uh, to study tropical cyclone risk near the near big cities. Uh, we did not show that for every single big city on Earth. I probably would need to have another three or four papers to discuss just that. But what we did do is we uh, examined it for 18 coastal cities, evenly distributed around ocean basins. So yeah, we, we did do that. Australia is already a stormy place. What lies in the hotter future for our Australian listeners? The short answer is that the northeast coast of Australia is located in a region that, according to our study, will face a pretty significant increase in in that risk for intense tropical cyclones. Um, To give you an idea for uh, Cairns in Australia, we found that intense tropical cyclone conditions used to have a return period of 50 years, so over the time period 1980-2017. But over the time period 2015-2050, this return period changes to around once every 20 years. So going from once every 50 years to once every 20 years, yeah, that's, that's a substantial increase in your risk right there. And you probably also want to know what exactly does this mean in terms of you know, what, what, what should you do with this information? Well, you should see it as such that yeah, risk mitigation strategies, they are typically built or designed for a certain return period. So for instance, the building code of your house is built such that it withstands a one in a hundred year wind speed. Your house should be able to withstand a one in a hundred year wind speed. That is where that return period comes in. Now, if you have a house that is built for that one in a hundred year wind speed, and then suddenly that one in a hundred year is the one in 40 year wind speed, you need to update your building code because your risk has increased and your, your house might be able to be damaged sooner than what it was built for. That's what we're talking about here in terms of risk, that for Cairns, for instance, you need to start looking at your risk mitigation strategies and you might need to update them as government, as policymakers, as whoever is involved there. Well, another way I would look at it, if you, if you talk about a return period of 50 years changing to a return period of 20 years, that really means that a person might expect to see one big storm in their lifetime previously, might see two giant storms uh, now. Would that be a correct interpretation? That is one way to interpret it. But don't forget that even the one in 500 year storm could happen at any given time. Any, any of those return period storms could happen in any given year. Hurricane Irma also had a return period of around once every 500 years, and it happened three years ago. That doesn't mean, or five years ago by now, <laughs> that doesn't mean that it cannot happen next year. Like it, it, it has an annual probability of occurrence. So, but yeah, with your annual probability 
substantially increasing, chances are higher that you are going to experience one of these events in your lifetime. What does your new study tell us about expected cyclone changes in Hong Kong and the South Pacific? Yeah, so (laughs) for Hong Kong, we found that, well, we're going to go back to that discussion on the return periods. So for Hong Kong, we found that intense tropical cyclones uh, used to have a return period of around once every 80 years, and that that is going to increase to once every 20 years. So that's a fourfold increase in your probability in the near future compared to, yeah, the last 30 years which is substantial. And well, for the South Pacific, I already discussed the situation for Cairns in Australia, um, but also in South Pacific island nations, we see, for instance, in New Caledonia, in, in, in Tonga, Fiji, that risk is, is increasing tremendously. And also more people are will be exposed to intense tropical cyclone conditions in these regions. Talking about flooding and fire, one factor increasing damages and the loss of life is more people are moving to the coast and and into the wooded lands. People move into the danger zone. Is it the same with tropical cyclones, do you know? Yes. (laughs) That's the very short answer, yes. So the the thing is that um, more people are migrating towards coastal cities and also with with general population increase and then more people living in these coastal cities, you will see that more people will find themselves in the path of a tropical cyclone in case of of an imminent storm. And when more people are exposed and you don't have risk mitigation strategies in place or yeah, they are outdated in the light of climate change, that means that more people might experience harm or even loss of life. I, I really hope not. Get I want to get that straight. Um, but we also might see more damages because people have assets, people have valuable cars and such, and, and they get damaged by tropical cyclones. So you see more damages occurring then. Now, the study that we did solely focuses on wind speed, but tropical cyclones, of course, also bring storm surge and precipitation. Uh, when they come on shore. So if you live closer to the ocean and you don't have a a dike or a coastal wall and there's a storm surge coming, yeah, you might find yourself also facing a flood risk. So it's definitely also the case with tropical cyclones that there are more and more people getting in harm's way. I was looking at figure five in your paper and it looked like we are seeing upward trends of winds in almost every part of the world. Is it fair to say our children will encounter more windy days, including intense winds, than our grandparents did? Well, I would like to phrase it a little bit differently. Our children are at larger risk of facing these these wind speeds, these extreme conditions. And therefore, my generation and the generation that will come after me, our children, it's really, really important that we start working on getting those adaptation measures in place. We need to mitigate that risk so that they are also safe uh, under future warming. And of course, also drastically cutting back emissions because that is at the heart of this whole climate change problem. Of course, I don't think I need to say that. One minor comment that I would like to make here, it only takes one severe tropical cyclone to change someone's life. It might be that your grandparents lived through, well, the Galveston hurricane is a bit long ago, but 
you know, your grandparents might have experienced a very intense cyclone as well, but the chances that your kid is going to experience that in their lives is probably larger than for your grandparents. It's another reason why we really have to avoid extreme climate change for sure. Now, you helped to develop this new tool to help project cyclones or hurricanes. What's next for you? For me personally, I am currently involved in a project together with Columbia University in New York, uh, where we work on you know, further improving our understanding of this tropical cyclone risk and how this is going to change under climate change. We, uh, we are looking at various climate uh, scenarios, so not just the SSP 585, which I used in this study, but also other emission scenarios, other time periods. And we are hoping to better understand how these different emission scenarios, what effect that has on risk. So that is what I am doing currently now and if we're talking about okay you know let's take this 10 years from now where where do i want to see this go yeah i really hope that in 10 years from now i'll be in an active position informing governments and policymakers on you know the risk that they are facing on tropical cyclones but maybe also other natural hazards uh, my interest is wider than just a tropical cyclone to help them better understand their risk and and implement risk mitigation strategies so that you know we can save more more people and and hopefully reduce damages in the future in the light of climate change i could see a future where a climate advisor is a cabinet position in government yeah i will be very much up for that <laughs> maybe not in the netherlands though because we don't really have tropical cyclones here but hey, you never know i really appreciated the the tool that you developed it took me a a while to work through, and then I realized, yeah, this is this is a really good thing to have. And I didn't realize there was such a hole in the big global climate models until I read your paper. From Free University Amsterdam, we have been speaking with research associate Nadia Blumendahl, and you can find links to all the science we just talked about in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. Nadia, thank you for sharing your time with our listeners. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a, a great pleasure to be here. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. Oh, heavenly grid, help us bear up thy standard, our chevron flashing bright across the gulf of compromise, standing humble on the rich field of mobile American thinking, here in this show, we call life. That's a classic from the Firesign Theater. This is Radio Equalshock with your host, Alex Smith. Isn't it wonderful how nature evolved to support us? Except that isn't how it works at all. A lifetime leader in conservation warns planet Earth is not a delicately balanced, benign being. Robert Nassi should know. Dr. Nassi is a French-trained ecologist, now Director General of the world's largest forest science organization, C4. We will find out what that is and the changing role of tropical forests, especially here on a climate-challenged planet. From Bogor, Indonesia, Robert Nassi, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Good morning, Alex. Thank you for having me. 
You lead a global conservation group with a multi-million dollar budget. You are an acknowledged expert on tropical forest life. What stirred you to poke around at this image of well-meaning nature? Let's talk about what we are having here is an international research organization that has a mandate to work on forest trees and agroforestry, mostly in the tropics. And we are looking at the contribution on forest trees and agroforestry to, to the sustainable development, uh, livelihood of the people, preservation of the environment, and uh, crises like the biodiversity loss or climate crisis or inequality, inequities. What we are facing, and I've been in this, this line of quote-unquote business for almost 40 years now, you sometimes wake up with the feeling that we, we didn't make much, much progress and and what you read is this sort of idea that human beings are particularly important in, in the grand scheme of things and, and that, that if, if we don't do anything, the, the world will disappear and that we need to rebalance our relationship with Mother Earth and something like that. And, and I think that, that that's very much a hubris thing. I mean, we, we don't really count in the, in the grand scheme of things. I mean, a sort of... Humans are blip in the history of Earth, uh, and um, whether we disappear or not because of our foolishness, uh, Earth will continue, life will continue in a different way. And, and so that, that's why I wanted to, to write this piece. And, and I think that if we do something now, it's not for Mother Earth, it's for us, because Mother Earth doesn't really care about us. So, and, and I know that some people may disagree, but I don't think that nature uh, is a, is a benign, uh, being. I mean, the thought of if, if a species, uh, disappeared and we have had uh, five recorded mass extension in the past, some of these have lost more than 95% of the existing life form at that time. And, and humans, we are starting the six mass extension and we may end up uh, being part of the list of the one going extend. That's why, I mean, you need to wake up the people and say, guys, we need to do something is for us, primarily, if we want to continue uh, having a civilization and, and, and enjoying the beauty on Earth. I want to get to a key sentence that you wrote in your blog post uh, at the C4 site. You said, tipping points are rapid, brutal changes in socio-ecological systems triggered by slow variables. Now, there's a whole lot in that sentence, and I think everybody needs to understand this key thought. How would you unpack that? The easiest example, is, uh, the classical one, is uh, what you call the eutrophication of lake. Uh, that means that uh, you have a, a lake uh, in a place, and this lake is full of fish, and uh, the water of the lake are more or less neutral in terms of acidity, and there is a light, and so there is an ecosystem functioning, and and then you have, uh, this lake is surrounded by uh, agricultural land and these agricultural land are, are slowly uh, seeping uh, nitrogen for the fertilizer in the lake. And for a long time, you don't see anything. And, and then one morning you wake up, the lake is different. Suddenly, it's brown. Most of the fish are floating belly up because they are dead. And, and then you have passed the tipping point. So the slow variable was the sort of the slow building of the nitrogen in the, in the water. And then when it reached a certain level, then the lake flipped into another state. The, the tipping points were local. 
so you had a lake uh, that was uh, trophic or, or you had uh, an, an ecosystem a forest that had moved into a savanna because of degradation what is happening now is that we are seeing emergence of global tipping points and that, that's a big problem like uh, people forecast that the Amazon will become a savanna uh, within uh, the next uh, 20 or 30 years and, and that will be irreversible and if we lose the Amazon forest, we, we lose a huge amount of carbon sequestration and, and, and all the, the water regime, the, the rainfall that is linked with that. So it, it, it will become overnight something that, that is a big issue. And uh, other of these tipping points are the uh, melting of the polar caps or, or the changing direction of the, the, the Gulf Stream or the oceanic current or the towing of the permafrost. So that things that will suddenly uh, shift in another state and at, at the global scale and, and, and create a havoc. And, and the, the additional problem we have is that there's about 10, 12 of these global tipping points and they are interrelated. That means that when you triggered one, you will end up having a cascade effect and, and then other will be triggered. So that's the melting of the polar cap will change the direction of the Gulf Stream that will change the temperature and the rainfall in the Amazon that will convert the Amazon in a savanna. And, and that's what we have managed to, to do with our activity. We have totally... Uh, you know, we hear a lot about the Amazon rainforest. Let's talk for a minute about Indonesia, where you are based. How would you compare the importance of the great forests of Indonesia and the Amazon? They, they are as important. I mean, so I don't think that you can give a sort of value judgments. One is more important than the other. Uh, the fact is that as of today, we haven't seen a, a tipping point like that uh, in the Indonesian forest because they are spread on a, on a very different uh, gradient of ecological condition, uh, island, lowland, several uh, islands. What we have noticed, uh, nevertheless, is the fact that there has been a steady decrease in precipitation over Borneo, for example. And that may be uh, something that is the the first premise of a potential tipping point, right? because when when the precipitation will become too low, I mean, forest will not be able to exist and it will move into a more open uh, vegetation. So I don't think that one is more important than the other. Uh, I think both are important. The one that is, in a sense, in the news now, because there is empirical evidence that something is happening is the Amazon. You know, there was sort of a major climate event in late 1997-98, uh, that strong El Nino year, and Indonesian peat bogs that had been drained for palm oil plantations caught fire, and that deep peat released so much carbon dioxide that Indonesia, which is a developing country, rose to be one of the three biggest greenhouse gas emitters on the planet that year, and there was a lot of unhealthy smoke. I worry that can happen again, and, and perhaps that is... We won't call it a tipping point, but it is a major climate event, I think. Yeah, it is a major event. And then it, unfortunately, it happened more than 97. There was a big fire in 2015 or so, and then 2019 uh, related to to similar issue. The fact is that uh, this peatland, they cover about uh, 3% of, of the surface of the, the world, but they, they store as much carbon as all the other uh, vegetation combined. And so when, when they are going in smoke, there is a lot of greenhouse gases. And, and that's why I mean, the, the, the government of Indonesia, following the, the, the 2015 fire, realized that uh, 
it was urgent to, to restore this peatland where they have been degraded, and, and they have created a, a specific agency to, to do that. And they are embarking in a, in a program of restoration of, of peatland. Not an easy feat, but, but it, it's a positive movement. And then we, we see the same also in uh, temperate or, or boreal peatland, where people realize, oh, we better not touch this ecosystem and, and try to restore the one that we have degraded because they are potentially on an area basis the, the, the most dangerous uh, emitters of greenhouse gases. One last thing on Indonesia specifically, I know that the two biggest pulp and paper companies in the country, APP and April, they're both planning massive expansion of production. I think they're going to double it or something. And I worry this will lead to conversion of more of Indonesia's remaining intact force, maybe in West Papua or Kalimantan. What would be your thoughts on that? It's a bit difficult to have a sort of a definite informed opinion on that. If you listen to the, the proponent, uh, so uh, APP or RAPP, they will tell you that, in fact, they, they plan to feed their meal with with their existing plantation. And that may be uh, possible. We, we, so that means that there will not be more opening or more, more cutting of, of natural forests for, for, for plantation. And legislation in Indonesia these days uh, has a permanent moratorium on, on cutting any primary forest. Or, or, or any uh, new concession on peatland. So there is some sort of safeguard, but nothing is really said about secondary forests. So it's a matter of how this company will, will be uh, conscious, control. There is uh, something that can be played by government in terms of legislation, but also by, by consumers in terms of uh, not buying paper for a company that is uh, cutting uh, primary forest to, to make pulp and paper. The jury is still out on this one. In the 1980s and 90s, I recall, and this was before there was a climate movement, uh, saving forests was a focus of environmental activism. We wanted to save this valley or that valley. Hundreds were arrested here in Canada. Do forest activists now have to introduce themselves as climate players just to be relevant? Uh, No, but for um, a long time, I mean, probably starting with Let's say Rachel Carson's book, uh, Silent Spring, uh, there has been an environmental movement, and this environmental movement has generally been opposed to logging uh, or, or to cutting forests or any uh, human activity that degrades the environment. For a long time, I mean, a sort of uh, th- these people have been considered uh, as marginals, and, uh, and the interests of industry and, and corporation were considered more important than and, 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 and we cut forests. And uh, what is happening um, with the, the climate agenda is that suddenly forests uh, got a, a, a much more prominent public profile because uh, they were a large repository of sequestered carbon and, and also they were offering some relatively cheap uh, opportunity to store more carbon if you plant more trees. And so that, that's why suddenly uh, forestry and sustainable forestry was surfing on the wave of uh, uh, climate change mitigation or adaptation. It's a positive uh, point uh, in a sense for the, the forest. It is not a good sign because it, we have not managed to, to solve it for, for the last 40 years. Tracking the Climate Challenge, Radio Ecoshock at ecoshock.org. We are tuned to Radio Ecoshock. Our guest is Dr. Robert Nassi, Director General of the Center for International Forestry Research, C4. We're talking about forests, climate change, and human change. 
Okay, Robert, you lead the C4 group, and that now includes another organization called World Agroforestry. I will bet most of my listeners do not know what these are because really you're dealing with governments and, and large nonprofits and, and banks, but not so much with the public face as I've noticed. What do you do as an organization, Robert? C4 and, and ICRAP, the World Agroforestry Center, I mean, are international organization that do uh, research, capacity development, and, and communication outreach on the issue of uh, forestry and agroforestry. And so what do we do? We work with many partners. And um, just to give you an idea, I mean, C4 and ICRAF is about 700 people. Half of these uh, people are scientists and do research, and we are operating in about 90 countries. And we have a permanent presence in 30 other countries. So it's not a big organization uh, if you compare to, to other organizations like the, the UN or FAO. But I think we, we have a, a meaningful and, and significant influence on, on the agenda on, on forestry and agroforestry. And then we are working uh, with partners uh, because uh, we are too small to do things by ourselves and because if you want to achieve results, you need to have a partner in country and that are believing in the same thing as you and they're willing to do the, the same thing. And we have five uh, thematic area. One is climate change. The other one is about value chain finance and investment. One on governance, gender equality. One in soil health, land health. Uh, one on genetic resources and, and, and biodiversity. And, and we have team of scientists that, that are working on the ground with partners in terms of uh, answering the, the questions that, that are asked by policymakers or by uh, communities for the sustainable management of forestry and agroforestry. Of course, like uh, many science organizations, we are not necessarily very good at communicating to the large public but that, that's something that we realized uh, a few years ago, and uh, we have significant communication program, use of social media. And so it's getting better, but uh, I guess that, yes, a lot of your audience doesn't know who we are. But uh, if you go to our website, I mean, I think it's an open access, and, and you can learn very, very quickly. And that's at C4.org. I am a bit nervous about defining forests as tools for human use. What does the term agroforestry really mean? And can it be truly green? There is a definition on forest, I mean, generally speaking, uh, by FAO or by the, the Convention on Climate Change. Uh, but since I've been working, uh, foresters have been always discussing about the definition of forest. And my, my best definition on forest is that when you are inside the forest, you know that it is a forest. Then you don't necessarily need to know what the percentage of canopy cover. And Agroforestry is is something that it's a form of management and it's, it's where you, you introduce trees, uh, into agricultural land to create a more complex and, and more diverse and more resilient system. You can have a rice field, uh, totally devoid of tree, or you can have a rice field, uh, growing trees, uh, together with the rice field that uh, these trees produce uh, fodder for, for your livestock or fruits for the village or, or uh, shade or whatever. So they, they produce additional service that comes on top of your agricultural production and 
because of the way they have been installed, they, they do not have a negative impact on the main commodity that you want to produce, uh, be it maize or, or rice or, or cocoa or coffee. So that, that's the idea of the agroforestry systems, I mean, sort of putting more trees in the agricultural land. And uh, although uh, the, the, the term was uh, coined in, in, into the, the Western countries, Farmers in Indonesia have been, uh, and, and in many other places, have been using agroforestry system uh, for millennia. Uh, home garden. Uh, there's a very long history of, of man uh, uh, in terms of using agroforestry system, and probably longer than there is an history of uh, doing monoculture. When you had the edge row in, in the field in, in, in Europe or in the temperate country, that, that has an agroforestry system. I mean, so. Unfortunately, because of the way uh, the economic our economic system is working, people have, a, have had a tendency to to f- drop this agroforestry system and to move to more intensive uh, monoculture uh, with uh, higher fertilizer input and that that produce more on an acre basis, but on the longer term uh, create a lot of environmental problem, and, and that's why we we have this problem now with. Uh, agriculture and food system that, that are the main cause of deforestation, but, but also one of the main cause of uh, unsustainable uh, land use or, or loss of fertility and, and so on. Here is something else we all need to learn about. What is the Global Landscapes Forum and what is your role in that? The, the Global Landscape Forum is a, is a partnership platform with uh, now I think about 30 or 35 uh, members. And it is really a, a place to exchange and a place to bring together pe- people that will not talk to each other normally. So it brings together not only the, the forest people, but also the agricultural people and the people interested in uh, fresh water, the people interested in uh, uh, blue carbon in, in ocean. So it's, and, 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 and you create this platform where the vice president of the World Bank can discuss with uh, a group of farmers in one place. And, and, and all this, it, it's very important because a, a lot of the reason why we are not managing particularly well uh, landscape is the fact that uh, there is not enough communication, not enough exchange between the different players. And so that, that, that was the idea of uh, when we created the, the Global Landscape Forum. That was um, a sort of an offspring of some event that we were organizing was Forest Day and Agricultural Day, putting together. And now it becomes uh, one of the largest platform, and uh, we have reached uh, more than 250 million people uh, through social media. To the, when we organize events, we have more than 140, 150 countries, uh, nationality participating to the events. For something like the Global Landscape Forum, the, the, the COVID-19 has been... Uh, somewhat of a blessing in disguise because as it was not possible to travel, we, we move into a more digital sort of event. And then suddenly you can have people that will not have the money to travel to attend your, your, your big conference, but now could participate uh, through online platform and, and, and we could reach more people. So that's the whole idea in a sort of create a, a movement around the sustainable management of landscape. And by landscape, we mean large territories where there are several conflicting or use like agriculture, forestry, urbanization, industry. 
You talk about the need to move from fossil power to a bio-based economy. How do you envision an economy based on biology rather than oil, coal, and gas? And can we do it without killing off more natural systems? If we want to um, to have a chance to, to stay uh, under the, the two-degree uh, limit in terms of climate change, we need to reduce uh, considerably uh, or even stop our fossil fuel consumption by 2050. Because I don't think that people will want to go back to uh, walking, uh, using horses, or, or we need to find a substitute. And, and uh, this substitute could be uh, uh, renewable energy using uh, wind, uh, using hydropower, using solar. But some of the biggest uh, greenhouse gas emissions are in terms of making concrete, making cement, steel, and, and so we could also use uh, wood material, uh, wood-derived material, to replace uh, concrete and steel. But that means that we need to still have a, a significant amount of forest or a significant amount of plantation that produce this wood material. And that's a real challenge. Uh, because if we want to move into a, a bio-based economy, we need more forests, we need more plantation, and we need to have that at the same time without uh, jeopardizing the need to feed the people and to have land for, for agriculture. So that, that's a big challenge, but it's a challenge that I think we can face, And but we need to start now because it takes time for, for trees to grow. And you see more and more, in fact, uh, appearing. Uh, some people are building a skyscraper uh, with cross-laminated timber, and there is also the, the, the same with uh, using uh, biomass to produce energy, which may be topical, but in, in some condition may be uh, something quite logical and something that will avoid uh, using fossil fuel. So that's the whole idea. I mean, so if, if we want to, uh, to continue having a decent standard of living and, and reduce uh, our fossil fuel consumption, we need to find alternatives. And, and we do have some alternatives in terms of energy, but in terms of building material, in terms of uh, clothes, and we need to find other alternatives. And, and uh, the, the best alternative we have are derived from uh, uh, wood. Is there an overarching plan to use world forests to help stabilize the climate or at least slow down our damage? We cannot stabilize the climate only using forest entries. That's not going to work. The only way we can stabilize the climate is to stop emitting greenhouse gases and, and to start uh, capturing uh, some of the CO2 that is already emitted. Forests can certainly play a role in that, forests and trees. But if you consider that about 30% of the emission of green gases come from the forest and land use sector, forest and, that means that 70% comes from somewhere else. So that's, unless we fix somewhere else, and this is the whole issue of using uh, use of fossil fuel or, or a very um, green uh, carbon-intensive uh, industry like uh, steel making or, or cement making, uh, we are not going to solve our problem. So forests, definitely part of a solution, but not the solution. We need a, a, a combination of less uh, dependency to fossil fuel, uh, more renewable energy, uh, more use of uh, biomaterial, and, and, and more forests. The, the advantage that we have in terms of forests is that when you have completely de decarbonized a sector, there is a, a residual amount of fossil fuel that you will still need to use. And then you can think of that for airline travel or for shipping. I mean, it will be very difficult to 
to decarbonize completely this sector, then you can use forest, additional forest or additional tree planting to offset these remaining greenhouse gases that, that you cannot remove from, from your industrial sector. So forest uh, and trees and agroforestry system uh, and for the matter, ocean and sea gradually have a role to play in terms of uh, combating climate crisis, but they cannot be the only solution. Is there anything else you would like to tell our listeners? I think that in spite of all the, 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 the gloom and doom, we should remain optimistic. I mean, and then we, we should try to solve our problem and, and, and certainly not uh, running into the street uh, with the cover in ashes and, and, and setting the doom day. And, and I think we can do it. But, but that requires that everybody uh, act and, and, and not simply look at what the other is doing. And uh, it, It's a matter of uh, government. It's a matter of uh, individual choices. But it's also uh, very much a, a society matter. So I think we can do it if, if we want. We don't have a lot of time to do it, but it's now or never. And as I said at the beginning, I mean, a sort of whether we do it and, and we thrive as a as a new ecological civilization, or, or we don't do it and we disappear, more than us, we don't care much. From Bogor, Indonesia, we have been speaking with Dr. Robert Nassi, scientist and director general of the Center for International Forestry Research. Find links to follow up in my show blog at ecoshock.org, and you can go direct to www.c4.org. Robert, thank you for sharing your valuable time with us. Thanks. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. That is all the time we have for Radio EcoShock this week. Don't forget, if you disagree with something you heard or you want to build it up with more tips and links, post a comment in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. I delay the post slightly to filter out the bots, but your comment will appear. We are getting a good flow of guests in right now, but I always value tips from listeners. Send your ideas and feedback by email. The address is radio at ecoshock.org. I'm Alex Smith. Your time is valuable. Thank you for listening and caring about this world.